I think it's safe to say that we all have people around us that annoy us. They annoy us for different reasons, many reasons, but maybe one of the reasons they annoy us is because they just don't think like we do. Doesn't that bug you when somebody doesn't look at a problem the way that you want them to look at a problem, or you go to them and they have this completely different way of looking at it, and you're just like, why can't you just think like me? Why are you the way you are? Like, why, why does that happen? Some of you got that. I appreciate that very much. Most of the time, that's annoying, right? When, when somebody says something or, or comes at a problem completely different and it bothers you, but... There's that once in a while, right, where that insight is gold. Every once in a while, where that, that insight, or because of the very fact that they don't think like you, they bring up something that you never would have thought of, and that's exactly what you needed to hear. I'm fairly certain that Jesus was one of those people. I can't really find it exactly in the text, but I would bet Jesus was one of those people. We've seen it time and time again with the disciples, right? They're just, how many moments are they like, ugh, why does he have to say that? Or why does he have to think like that? Or why is he talking to the Pharisees like that? Why can't he just stop causing trouble and go along with the program? Last week, Jesus reset the definitions of gender, of marriage, of sexuality. We have talked previously about how the kingdom of God is completely different than the kingdom of man. It's a place like no other. It's a place of purity. It's a place of forgiveness. And Jesus calls his disciples, and now us, church, to start living then with a completely different mindset, not just going along with everyone else's mindset, a completely new way of looking at things right now. We all want to make it to the kingdom of heaven, right? That's the goal. We want salvation. We want to get into heaven. We want to finish well. And Jesus is going to challenge us this morning in a totally new way of looking at things in order to have that happen. I'm sure you're already at Matthew chapter 19. Last week we made our way through a very difficult passage. We saw Jesus being tested by the Pharisees, pushed into the corner to pick a cultural side. And instead of picking a cultural side, he says, let's just see what God says about marriage, about divorce, about gender. Ultimately, last week, we saw that culture doesn't define those things. God defines gender, marriage, and sexuality. Jesus taught a master class in that last week of how we should approach problems as well, not just picking a side, but seeing what the Word of God has to say about it. This week, we don't have the Pharisees testing him, but we will see Jesus interact with others, and once again, he turns those expectations upside down. Look at verse 13 in chapter 19. As Paul read, Then the children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he went away. And so, some context here. Kids, right? In, in America, we, we probably run the risk of worshiping our children, of centering our lives around our kids our sports, activities, interests, all of that stuff. Kids are an amazing blessing from the Lord, but they make lousy gods. We've got to remember that. This is completely the opposite case in first century Greco-Roman culture. Kids were completely disregarded. They were not even, they were second-class citizens. They were marginalized. They were disregarded. They were treated harshly. They were abandoned. Abortion and abandonment was rampant. 
One non-Christian university professor, right? Non-Christian university professor said this, Christianity was the single greatest breakthrough against child abuse in history. He explains at the time of Jesus' life, child abuse, as noted by one historian, was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Abandonment was common. Children were property, no different than slaves. But Jesus stood up for the children. He cared for them when those typically did not around him. So against that cultural background, right? We've got to understand how society thought of kids in the first century Greco-Roman world, right? Against that cultural background, little children, not sure how old they are, probably toddlers because it says they were brought to Jesus. So little children were brought to Jesus. Not unusual for parents to want a religious leader to pray over their children, lay hands and bless them, a prayer of blessing. Sounds nice, right? Nope. Disciples are having none of it. Disciples flip out. Get these kids out of here. What are you doing? He doesn't have time to talk to kids. He's here. He's got a lot of important people. To kids. No kids. We explicit, no kids. Just get them out of here. Right? You have more important things to do than hang around with kids right now. Our text tells us that Jesus rebuked the people. Or, sorry, the disciples rebuked the people. How dare you bring kids here? This is Jesus. Let's get them out of here. How does Jesus react? Does he say, hey, thanks, guys. Good, man. Kids are like, you know, Petri dishes. They could have caught the cold or something. They're, ugh, they're probably runny noses and they're going to bug me. Thank you for saving me from those little children. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, let them come to me. He says, don't stop them. Let them. Let them come here. I want them to come to me. He says, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You might be thinking, I've heard this before. And you might be right, because a couple weeks ago we did. In chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember what a dumb question that was, but they asked it anyway. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, right? Again, disregarded, marginalized. Unless you become like this child, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus repeats himself, it is important, and he's repeating himself again. He's saying, who's the most important person in heaven? The one who is dependent, the one who is humble, the one who maybe society doesn't look, look upon with regard. Maybe the one society and culture disregards. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is for the humble. Kingdom of heaven is for the dependent, the ones that culture disregards like children. The church has always welcomed those who have been discarded by culture. Why? Because Jesus did. And we're his church. So here's the point. Jesus welcomes those discarded by culture. Jesus, Jesus welcomes those discarded by culture. I, I hope you're noticing something here very important. That from the outset of the Christian church, we were countercultural. We went against the culture from the very beginning. And once again, Jesus is calling the disciples to a totally new way of looking at things, right? We, we, we don't look at the same way, or we don't look at kids the same way that culture looks at kids. If Jesus regards those from whom culture disregards, he's calling us to do that as well. We want to regard those that culture disregards, because Jesus did. 
The church has historically cared for the outcasts, the widows, the orphans, the helpless, the poor, the powerless. You might be tempted to think that abortion is a new problem. It's not a new problem. What is, the horrific, what is new is the, the horrific scientific advances that we have in abortion. The decimation of values and morality that now allows our culture to murder over 2,000 babies a day. The majority of which just flipped, by the way. It's now the majority of abortions are through the pill. And you can get the pill on Amazon. See what's going on? It's getting worse and it's getting worse. Who stood up for the the children since the beginning? We did. The church did. And we still are. This is why we support and thank God for ministries like today's Choice Women's Center. One author wrote this. Taking their cues from Jesus, the early Christians collected the babies abandoned by others. And maybe some some context there. If, If the child was born a girl, they usually just abandoned it. Because they don't want girls. Or if they just didn't want the baby to... That was abortion in the first century. They would just abandon the child. Leave it. Historians tell us frequently you would walk around and you would see babies that have been discarded. Babies that have been abandoned. One author writes, Taking their cues from Jesus, the early Christians collected the babies abandoned by others. And when, to everyone's surprise, the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian, legal protections for women and children started to come into place. So think about that. Christians going through the city, picking up the babies that people had abandoned and left to die. Christians were the first to establish orphanages, schools, hospitals. Contrary to misguided public opinion, Christianity does not foster violence. Quite the opposite. We cry out in 2022 America for equality, for all human rights, and yet the baby doesn't get a say in that. They are literally being discarded. We cry out for equality in human rights in 2022 America, but remember, put that against the backdrop of world history. There's no such thing as human rights in world history. There were always classes that were oppressing other classes. And so we have to remember, and that's not good, that's sin, we're saying, but the reality is that's never the way that it has been. So it's not that we are doing something different or unique here if we're oppressing somebody, which we shouldn't be in the first place. Culture's always done that. And who stepped in and said that's wrong? Christians did. The church did. Slavery, of course, was endemic. Women were treated as sexual property throughout history. Children were completely disregarded, as we've been saying. We talked about it in in chapter 18, but who are the marginalized today in our society? There's certainly many children in need. Maybe you're being called to be a foster or adoptive home. Maybe you're called to work with My Brother's Place, with those in need in Sussex County, or volunteer with Today's Choice in in helping women in unplanned pregnancies. We still have the marginalized and the oppressed all around this church. It's still there. And we're still the ones that need to be picking up the abandoned babies. We're the ones that welcome them, because Jesus did. And he is using this moment to drive that point home to his disciples and to us. So Jesus does exactly what the disciples don't want him to do. He lays his hands on the children, and he blesses them, and he prays for them. And then he leaves. And as he leaves, he heads right into a young man who you would think that Jesus would welcome. But it turns out, not so much. Look at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would have or you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Okay, which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Jesus is approached by a young man. We have the luxury of uh, two parallel accounts here in Mark and in Luke. Luke's version tells us that he was a ruler, probably a religious ruler, probably someone who was maybe even a Pharisee. We also know from the passage that we just read that he's rich. And so therefore, this is the famous account of the rich young ruler. And you think of all people, Jesus would welcome such a young man. Uh, an up-and-comer, so to speak. Wouldn't Jesus welcome such a man? Yeah. No, not so much. Remember, Jesus is calling his disciples and us to a totally new way of looking at things. The man says, teacher, what good deed must I do to get into heaven? And when we talk about eternal life, we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about the kingdom of heaven, it's all the same thing. It all means salvation. It all means eternal life, right? Jesus responds quickly and sharply, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Now, this verse has given birth to all kinds of controversy here because some of the other versions say that the man calls Jesus a good teacher and then Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And then the atheist crowd lose their minds because they say, aha, Jesus said he wasn't good. And Jesus said he wasn't God. Wrong. <laughs> That's not what he said. That's not what he means. He's not talking about his deity. It completely misses the point. Jesus' words have nothing to do with his deity, but instead the man's understanding of the definition of the word good. Jesus is essentially saying, and I think he's a little bit irritated, good. What do you know about good? Why are you asking me what is good? You don't know about good. Jesus tells him, well, you went to Sunday school, just follow the commandments, you know them all. If you sense Jesus is blowing this guy off, he's kind of blowing this guy off. The young man, undeterred, responds, which ones? You know, I want to be sure. You know, give me, give me the commandments that I have to, you know, check the boxes on. I want to be sure that I have everything that I, I need to do, right? Odd question, right? If he's a religious ruler, wouldn't the answer be all of them? Like, why are you going to pick some? And Jesus then masterfully plays right into his little mind game there. He quotes a subsection of the Ten Commandments. And then a summary commandment of love the neighbor as yourself. Why just those? It's not because the others are unimportant or Jesus is declaring them that they're no longer in effect. Maybe it has a lot to do with those commandments talk about how we regard others. Like this young man probably is not. Like the culture at that time was not. The little children. Were they loving them as they loved themselves? No, we're not. Regardless, the young man is undeterred. Jesus gives him the list of commandments and he says, sweet, 
I nail those. I've been killing those my whole life. But you know what, Jesus? I, that's kind of why I'm here. I still feel unfulfilled. I still feel like there's something more. I still feel like I'm missing something. What am I missing? Is there something else I should be doing? Because that just doesn't feel like that's all of it, right? Now Jesus sets the trap, springs the trap, right? He says, yeah, there is. Actually, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have your reward in heaven, and then come and follow me. You could just imagine the look on that young man's face. The Bible says that he turned and he walked away sorrowful. He probably hung his head immediately. Not the answer that he wanted to hear. Absolutely not. He literally, church, he literally walks away from the Son of God because he told him to go and sell your possessions and then come and follow me. And he says, I'm not going to do that. That hurts too much. I love my money too much. I love my stuff too much. I can't, I can't do that, Jesus. Don't miss this, church. Jesus welcomed the children whom culture rejected, and he rejects the man whom culture would celebrate. A rich, young ruler. Talk about total renewal. Talk about totally new way of looking at things. That's what Jesus is saying here. But even more to the point here, this man is after salvation, right? That's his question. What do I have to do? What do I got to do to get in the door, Jesus? Just tell me. He wants assurance that he's good to go, but only in the way that he wants to be good to go. What Jesus calls him to is way too hard. I liked your first answer, Jesus. Just minimal obedience. Like, what is the minimum bar that I got to do to get in the door? Just tell me. Just what commandments? Just like the Pharisees tell us, right? Religious, cultural box checking. Just obedience. That's all I got to do. Let's just tell me. Here's a huge problem with that. Cultural obedience can't save. Cultural obedience cannot save. This young man has everything from a cultural perspective. He's most likely a religious leader and he is rich. He says, validate my cultural assumptions here, Jesus. This is what I'm thinking, that if I just follow the rules, I get into the kingdom, right? All I need to do is check the boxes on the commandments and I'm good, right? It's masterful how Jesus plays this guy. He lets the man take the bait and then he sets the hook. Jesus at first gives him the answer you want to hear. You know the deal, son. Just check the boxes. Just follow the rules. He knows he's not satisfied with that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be talking to Jesus in the first place. He knows there's more. He knows he's missing something. That's what he asks. And why? And then Jesus drops the bomb. It's your heart. And I just scored a direct hit in your heart. Sell all you have, the thing that you love the most, the thing that you worship the most, your money, your possessions, give it to me. And he says, no way, I'm not going to do that. Carson writes that he enjoyed wealth while suffering barrenness of soul. Being saved, inheriting eternal life, making it to heaven is not about how good a person you are, right? That's what the guy asked. How good do I have to be? What's good? It's not about how good we are. It's about realizing that we're a sinful person and we throw ourselves on the mercy and the only one who is good. It's not about checking the boxes on the commandments. It's about giving your whole heart to Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. We can't do that on our own, church. 
God has to do that for us. When you come to faith, when you're converted, when you come to Christ, you get a heart transplant. Jesus literally gives us a new heart. Your old heart is taken out and the attachments that go with it. And God gives you a new heart, one that has affections for Jesus and affections for his church and affections for his law. I'm not saying having wealth is bad, but letting wealth rule your heart is sin. And that's where this man is. Nothing can rule our hearts if we're saying we're Christians except King Jesus. That's the point. Only Jesus can rule our hearts, our new hearts. This is not what the rich young ruler wanted. Another commentator writes this, The young man wanted a teacher, not a Lord, who demanded sacrifice. That's why he calls him teacher. He didn't want it. He didn't want a Lord who demanded sacrifice that I have to bow down and give everything to. I just want a teacher. Just tell me what I got to do. The Old Testament book of Ezekiel, there's a prophecy of this new heart that I'm speaking about, the prophecy of the heart transplant where the Holy Spirit gives us our new heart when we place our faith in Jesus. In Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 26, watch this. Hundreds of years before Jesus, Ezekiel prophesying of this very thing, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, watch this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you catch that? You get a new heart, and that new heart then causes you to obey his rules, right? not backwards. We don't try and clean ourselves up. We don't try and obey our way into heaven like this rich young man is because what you're doing there is you're trying to live the life that you haven't been given yet. You're trying to operate out of a new heart that isn't yours yet. When we turn to Christ in faith, he gives us that heart transplant. He gives us that new heart. And then that's how we even want to obey those things. That, if that man had a new heart... He would say, great idea. All my stuff is being put on eBay right now. And it's going to go to the poor. But he, he doesn't have a new heart. So his old heart fights every single bit of that with Jesus. And he says, no way. It's not going to happen. That stuff is my identity. We're talking about a complete renewal here. The man is trying to obey without a new heart and earn his way into heaven. And Jesus sends him packing. First, he says, let me give you a new heart. Then obey me. You can't live out of a new nature that you don't have. And what is it for you, church? What is it for us? What is that thing in our lives? What is that thing in our lives that if Jesus came to you and said that, give it to me, that would cause you to turn your head in sorrow? What is it? Think about it. What is the most important thing in your life? And if we're Christians, everything should be property of Jesus anyway used for his glory. What is that one thing that if Jesus says that, give it to me, follow me, you might hang your head and walk away sorrowful. Who or what sits on the throne of our hearts? Whatever it is, it needs to be dethroned. To follow Jesus is to follow him out of that new heart with Jesus at the center. God sets the rules for accessing his kingdom and these are the rules. And once again, they are completely countercultural, completely new way of thinking of things. 
shocking even. And once again, the disciples express their shock. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, of course, never missing an opportunity to teach, right? He says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible. With God all things are possible. Do you love it when the text says Jesus looked at them? Like, they knew they were about to get it, right? When Jesus locked eyes with them, they knew it was coming. Imagine that dramatic pause, and he looks at them and says, You're right. With man it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's, Jesus, we don't understand what's going on here. You just sent that guy packing. You just sent him away. You just rejected him. Do you know who he was? Do you know how much money he could have tithed to our new church? you know how much money he could have given to the Nehemiah Fund? Like, a lot. <laughs> what are you doing? See what I did there? Do. What, what, why? I imagine the disciples... We're struggling to get their minds around how Jesus just turned a man like that away. A man whose society would celebrate. At that time, it was assumed if you were rich, God was happy with you. If you were rich, you were blessed by God. So the disciples maybe bought into that a little bit. So what are you doing? This guy's rich. He's automatically in good with God. Why, why did you send him away? What are you doing? I mean, obviously, he's blessed by God. He's rich. And Jesus tells them, actually, if you're rich, it's actually harder to get into the kingdom of heaven. He tells them, only with great difficulty can a rich person get into heaven. Why? Because their hearts don't belong to Jesus Christ. Their hearts belong to their money. Sometimes. In this case, it did. Again, not saying it's wrong to have money, right? And we're in America, so we're in the richest country in the world, right? But the point is, that, is the money your number one in your heart? Or is Jesus the number one in your heart? He says if you're rich, it's actually harder to get into the kingdom. Because the temptation then is so much greater to make the money and the wealth and your possessions and your houses and your stuff your God instead of God your God. And Jesus gives them an example to prove the point. He says, in fact, guys, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. Of course, commentators have spilled all kinds of ink about this over the centuries, what this means. I think it just means that it's impossible for a giant camel to go through the head of a needle. That's probably what it means. Sometimes it's just what it says, and I think that's one of those times. You do, sometimes when we're in Israel, like they have this little tiny door that's on top of a bigger door, and sometimes people are saying, well, the camel can't go through. It's, it's a needle and a camel. Camel was the biggest animal in Palestine at that time. And I will tell you, Melanie and I rode a camel in Israel. It is terrifying. It is giant. I didn't have that on my bucket list. That's on the kind of, sort of glad I survived that, never wanted to do it again list. I, I, camels are giant. You're like 15 feet off the ground. It's crazy. Stacy's laughing because she remembers. It's, it's right. I'm not, I'm preaching the truth up here. He says, try to get that through the eye of a needle, the smallest thing you could possibly think about. 
Jesus is using hyperbole to prove a point. It's impossible. It's nearly impossible. Can a camel go through the eye of a sewing needle? No. Neither can a rich man, just on his own merits, enter the kingdom. Remember what we're talking about here. Total renewal. Unless there's a heart transplant, odds are that heart is going to be sold out to his money. And so Jesus gives him a new heart, and then his heart is sold out to him. He says, with man, it's impossible. Old heart, it's impossible. With God, new heart, it's possible. It's impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit giving total renewal. No one would freely choose to do that. Jesus affirms that last point. Men cannot save themselves. You're right. It's impossible for anyone to be saved by their own merit or, or by following cultural values. Men can't save. But then he gives them the point that he's trying to say. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Once again, remember, context, 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 right? The man is after salvation. And Jesus calls him to sacrifice. And he's having none of it. The only way salvation is possible is total renewal in God through Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Salvation is only possible through Jesus. Salvation is only possible through Jesus. Notice very clearly here the famous statement that with God all things are possible in context deals with salvation. It's been hijacked by the prosperity gospel, right, in all kinds of ways to make it fit whatever the heck we want it to fit. To say whatever thing is hard for me or difficult for me or my Monday or whatever or my boss or whatever, God can do it. God, it yes, of course, God can do anything. But in this context, he's talking about what? Talking about salvation. And salvation, church, is the greatest miracle. Salvation is the greatest miracle. God still does the miraculous. We've seen many evidences of this truth in our study in Matthew. But let's also face it, we need God's help to equip us to do what he's called us to do. It's difficult to live a faithful life as a Christian. Anybody else experience that? It is difficult to live a faithful life as a Christian. And we cannot do that on our own. It's impossible on our own. But with God, all things are possible. The biggest miracle then, that a holy God would welcome those who rejected him. Think about that. We talked about it a couple weeks ago with the nature of our sin against God, that he would forgive our sin. With God, all things are possible. Yes, he does forgive your sin. Salvation is the greatest miracle and only possible through Jesus. God is completely 100% sovereign over salvation, which means from beginning to end, it is a work of God. God draws you to himself through the work that God has done through Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and grants you that faith and that repentance to believe. And then after that, he sustains you. He holds you fast in your walk, and he will see you home. It is from start to finish a work of God. And of course, one that's based completely on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which we look forward to celebrating in a couple weeks on Easter. It's all over the New Testament, especially in Romans, perhaps, that we see by faith, of course, that we're united by faith to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And I know I've read this passage probably 57 times from the pulpit, but Romans chapter 6, the first couple of verses there are just so foundational, church. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Salvation is possible. It's only possible through Jesus. And we see that miracle of salvation tied directly to the work of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And our faith is in that. Perfectly represented, by the way, in the ordinance of baptism. And once it actually stays above 40 degrees for more than 48 hours, we're going to have a baptism service in the summer, as we like to do, and never too early to be talking about that. The act of baptism, the physical reminder, representation of our faith in Jesus Christ, God does it, and only through Jesus. This is a hard truth to wrap our minds around. It was a hard truth for the disciples, too, because it goes against everything in the culture around them. Where the rewards were, they are now, right? In the here and now. We, 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 don't, we want to see this now. But salvation promises us a reward later in eternity that goes beyond the here and now. And that's where Jesus ends. This, is, this always struck me as a little, and I'll be totally honest, sharing true feelings now. Safe place, special time. <laughs> I was like, this is one of those passages where why... This doesn't, why, why 27 through 30? I would have been so happy ending at 26, and 27 through 30 just kind of takes it in a different direction. But then I realized it really doesn't take it in a different direction at all. Look at 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, sermon series subtitle twice in this passage, just trying to throw that out there, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake, my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The disciples continue their protest in this, right? He's making their heads hurt again. He's not thinking like how he wants or they want him to think. And now they're a little irritated. What about us, Jesus? What if we left everything? We left all those things. We left our businesses. We left our families. Some of our families disowned us when we became Christians. What do we get? What are we going to get? Jesus brings them to the end of the story. The restoration of all things when Jesus returns and makes all things new. He tells them that in the new world, or maybe better, in the renewal, or in the regeneration of all things, he says, you will be rewarded. You will judge the 12 tribes of Israel with me. Which makes our heads hurt. And again, I think probably the best explanation for that is exactly what it says. Somehow, in some way, the 12 disciples will participate in the ruling and the reigning of God's kingdom when it comes in. When it comes and it makes all things new. Somehow, in some way, they will literally judge or they will literally, literally rule or reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe a, a succession of command, if you will. 
showing the congruency of the old covenant and the new covenant. And he tells them whatever they give up now, family, possessions, whatever else, to follow him, they will receive back 100-fold in heaven, meaning exponential rewards for your sacrifice here and now. What you gave up now in the least of society, being disregarded by society, you will be greatest in heaven. This must have made their hearts leap with joy. They felt this. And for us, it's, in America, it's, it's, it's not as easy to feel this. But in many countries hostile to the gospel, you declare yourself a Christian in Afghanistan, you're disowned by your family. You, you literally give up everything. You probably can't work because your ID doesn't say what they want it to say. You might even give up your own life to follow Christ. Becoming a Christian means you might be disowned by the family. It probably means, again, you can't work or earn a living. It means that your very life is at stake. The disciples felt this. The disciples knew this. They said, what about us? By following you, we've become the outcasts of society, and we've lost everything. And Jesus says, yeah, you're not thinking. You're thinking me here and now. I need you to think farther than that. I need you to think at the renewal of all things. I need you to think at the end of the story. Again, it's hard for us to feel this in 2022 America, but to someone in Afghanistan or North Korea or first century Palestine, there was no better news. It's worth it. What we're doing now is worth it. What we're giving up for Jesus Christ is worth it. Up until even, even our lives, it's worth it. The costly sacrifice we are making are now worth it. And we need to have more of a focus on eternity, church and less on this world. We need to expect less fulfillment out of this world and more in the next world. Jonathan Edwards famously wrote in his resolutions that I was resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Think about that focus. I'm resolved to get as much heavenly rewards as I possibly can, to get as much much happiness and joy and fulfillment when? Not here, there. And Jesus brings it full circle because he's not thinking like the world does, is he? What does the world say? It's here and now. You've got to make your life the best you can possibly make it right now. And you've got to live your best life right now. And you've got to do what you've got to do to live that best life right now. And Jesus says, no, this life is about sacrifice. The next life is about reward. Totally turns it on his head. And he says, he sums that up in the last verse with the powerful words of Jesus. He says, many, don't miss that, not all, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. It's exactly what Jesus has been saying all along. That Matthew has been trying to teach us. He says, many who look like they're first in this world. Many look like they're the rich and the powerful. Many in this world are the ones who look like they're succeeded. Many are those who are regarded in this world. And guess what? They'll be last in the kingdom. If they're in the kingdom at all. They'll be last in the kingdom. Who will be first? The ones who have given up all for me. The ones who have given their hearts, their, their possessions, everything in service of me, in service of the kingdom. Jesus brilliantly ties all this together by talking about the new world. 
In fact, the word for new world that ESV translates, some of you have a footnote or a different English word. It's closer again to the idea of complete regeneration, complete renewal. And Jesus adds or ends this passage by saying, walk out now the complete renewal that you will get in the new world. Live like that now. Live like you are completely renewed, completely different right now. Live your life now thinking about the sacrifice that you, you're going to do to follow me are going to be rewarded in the next life. Live like that now. Think that way now. Don't think, watch this, don't think like they do. Think like I'm telling you to do. I'm calling you to a completely different way of thinking. So here's the big idea. Salvation is for those who welcome complete renewal. Salvation is for those who welcome complete renewal. I, I hope this, this spiritual truth is, is plain to see. We're not supposed to just be living like the world. And a lot of people can get all kinds of legalistic about that, and you know, you can go Amish or something like that and not use electricity or whatever else. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're in the world. We drive cars, we wear pants, like in normal things. But Christians just aren't supposed to go along with the world's way of thinking. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's calling them to a completely different way of thinking. We're called to a complete renewal of our hearts, of our souls, of our minds, a new worldview. Why? Because we're citizens of another world. So Jesus says, start living that way now. Start prioritizing those things that are prioritized in the kingdom now. Walk in that renewal today. It's a totally new way of looking at things. We welcome those whom the culture discards. We realize that we have to be different and our, our cultural obedience can't save. It's not just about checking the boxes or being a good person. It's about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and living every day in dependence of Christ. Only God can do that work. Only God can save he gives us the ultimate miracle in salvation with a complete renewal of our hearts, that heart transplant he gives us. It's about realizing that sometimes God calls us to give up those things that hurt, that we don't want to give up. But here's the thing, it's worth it. That's what trapped that rich young man. He said, I can't give up that. He missed that it was worth it. You give up anything, won't you, if you think it's worth it. Following Jesus, church, is worth it. We give up everything for him and we give up joyfully because that's what he calls us to and it is worth it. Disciples are called to a new way of looking at things and that's usually in conflict with the way the world and culture looks at things. And Jesus is telling us that we need to welcome that. We need to be okay with that. Salvation is for those who welcome complete renewal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you save, the fact that you have taken the people who have rejected you, who have lived for themselves and their worlds and their kingdoms. You've given us new hearts, new minds through faith in Jesus Christ, and that through that we walk out that new identity. Lord, help us to be those people that think differently that think with that kingdom-minded focus, that think with the end in mind, that think with not just about building our kingdoms here, but how do we use what we have here for the glory of God and the rewards in the next life. 
Lord, speak deeply into our hearts and the things you might be calling us to. To welcome those that are discarded by culture. To think with regard to the things that we own and, and who we can minister to as the marginalized. Lord, help us to think deeply in our hearts about what reigns in our hearts. Maybe it is our possessions. Maybe it is our status. Maybe it is a million different things. And may it only be Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.